0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the War Daddy Podcast. Today, we'll be picking up our exploration into monuments, shrines, and how our understanding of the past creates not only the current moment, but the future we're all going to inherit. Now, depending when you're listening to this, this might actually be a little bit of breaking news. So this past Monday, December the 11th, the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, which stood lean and mean for over a hundred years inside the United States Capitol's National Statuary Hall, has been removed. So just to give you a little background on this, each state would choose, quote, two deceased persons to be cast in marble or bronze, who have been citizens thereof, and are illustrious for their historic renown or for distinguished civic or military services, such as each state may deem to be worthy of national commemoration." In 1909, Virginia chose to immortalize favorite son George Washington, for obvious reasons, and next to him would stand Thomas Jefferson. Actually, no, no, not Thomas Jefferson as one might expect, but rather none other than General Robert E. Lee. Being that Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy and that they chose Lee as their second standard bearer, just as the South was being plunged into the ugly shadow of Jim Crow governance, its motivations should really come as no surprise. What really is surprising is how long this traitor against the United States stood next to its founder at the physical heart of the American capital. Now, we've talked a hell of a lot about the movement to remove Confederate statues, and Lee is usually found at the center of these discussions. We've also discussed how the demonstrations and efforts to tear him and his ilk down have been met with a wide variety of reactions. The current president, at least for a few more weeks as of this recording, tweeted that he was quote, sad to see the history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments. With that being one end of this wide-ranging spectrum of opinions about this issue, there's really been one that keeps coming up overwhelmingly in my conversations and research. That's the, it belongs in a museum. You know, the old, Indiana Jones' stance. So for those of you that do feel that Confederate statues belong in a museum rather than the heart of cities, public spaces, and within the U.S. Capitol, y'all should be heartened to know that this particular Lee statue will in fact be turned over to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture in Richmond. Now, I felt that this bit of breaking news was a perfect primer for my discussion with Mr. Jared Frederick. Hello? Hey, what's up, Jared? How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Jared holds a master's in American history from the University of West Virginia, is a Penn State University history professor, and former historical guide at the Gettysburg Battle site, as well as the Harper's Ferry Historical site. Is there anything you'd like me to add to that?
1: Um, I'm also a author of uh, a number of books.
0: Oh, right, 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 yeah. He's also an author of a handful of nonfiction books.
1: And my most recent one is Dispatches of the Day, which came out for the 75th anniversary last year.
0: And he's also got a World War II movie currently in development.
1: Yes, yeah, so our, uh, our movie, entitled Hurtgen, is in large part about the experiences of uh, my grandfather.
0: So despite all of the things that Jared's got going on, I had a chance to catch up with him and discuss not only the Confederate Monument conflict, but how, in his estimation, the study of history is a constantly evolving pursuit. Okie dokie, one more shot of whiskey and I'm ready to go.
1: <clears throat> Alright, it's five o'clock somewhere.
0: He's a fellow with a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I found his unique insight to be enlightening and perspective-enhancing. I hope you will too.
1: When I walk into the classroom, I have three things in mind, and I'll uh, sequence them here uh, in priority. Um, firstly, you know, if I can present a coherent historical timeline to students to allow them how everything that we do and everything that happens in our world today is interconnected with the past you know our lives and everything that happens in the world does not exist in a vacuum and everything from the technology that we use to the books that we read to the things that our politicians do and say is rooted in history uh secondly what i try to do is to instill critical thinking skills in students, uh, give them you know, some uh, inquisitive food for thought, allow them to become better thinkers so they in turn can become better and more engaged citizens. And then lastly, the most important thing of all is that I really have a sincere hope that history can show people how to be good, how to be kind and courteous to others, because as history shows us, uh, the historical record is not kind to people, to those who are not kind to others. Um, And so I think we can look at moments of the past, both of people acting badly and acting heroically, and that can serve as a means of inspiration for young people today. So those are the three main things that I keep in mind while I'm teaching.
0: Awesome points, every one of them, and I, I hope we. I wish we could clone stamp you and just kind of sprinkle you throughout uh, the world, especially America at this moment, because it sounds like that's the best possible uh, mission you could be on as far as historian. So I, I feel you there. I'm also very curious about being in the physical spaces that you have been, as far as, you know, Gettysburg and Harper's Ferry, maybe to a lesser extent, but equally important, it's holy ground for America. And like you said, the things that happened there, they really do shape and have shaped and echoed through our entire history. And they've led us to where we are now, uh, especially as Americans. And there's one specific instance at Harper's Ferry that I think relates really well to this conversation that's been ongoing about monuments, monuments, Confederate monuments, how to honor that past, all those kind of things. So I'm going to kind of buzz through this little nugget here. If you want to correct me at any point, since you are the expert, um, I would love to hear it. For people who don't know about um, the John Brown's, I guess you could call it a raid. I think that's what it's kind of listed as. Maybe it's more of a crusade or a, you know, failed attempt. I'm not sure. But either way, um, John Brown, who was an abolitionist, uh, in 1859, his kind of grand scheme uh, was to overthrow slavery, and one of the ways he was going to do it was to start a slave rebellion by literally capturing the arsenal at Harper's Ferry, which was uh, at the time it was in it was in Virginia. It was it was not Confederate yet. Obviously, they hadn't quite chosen sides yet. But he did try to enlist uh, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman to join him on this raid to kind of start this slave rebellion. They didn't want to do it uh, for what looks like obvious reasons now, is that it was definitely not going to work. It seemed pretty suicidal at the time. The actual raid itself did not go well. Um, There were casualties. All 22 of his men were either killed or captured, uh, including himself. Uh, John Brown was hung uh, by... Actually, it was uh, Colonel, at the time a Colonel Robert E. Lee, who uh, we'll talk about him a little bit later. He was in charge of the... um, you know, the, the outcome of that. Uh, and he was the first guy, uh, first man in American history to be executed for treason in the United States. And the reason that this is so important is because it was one of the last steps on the road to the American civil war. We can kind of see this as like a huge bubbling, rising action. Um, Jefferson Davis uh, himself, he said something to the effect of, um, even if it rushes us into a sea of blood, Southerners should be leaving the Union over things like this. Uh, Brown himself, when he was being before he was hung, his kind of thesis statement on the whole thing was: even though it was doomed, the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away by anything but blood. So this was kind of one of those big bubbling actions to the beginning of the Civil War. And as as yourself, someone who is kind of. You've been in that space, you've worked as someone uh, trying to relate this history to people who go to this site. In your experience, is that the way the site is remembered today? Is that the most important part about the Harper's Ferry site, and how do you approach that?
1: I begin by saying that the meanings of a place like Harper's Ferry are constantly evolving and i think that can be said of almost any major historical site in the united states that ultimately it is what society at the time wishes it to be uh for some generations of americans it was a famous civil war landmark Uh, For many decades, it was perceived, as you alluded to, kind of that final spark that ignited the powder keg that would lead to the Civil War. And really, I would say that since the 1960s, especially in the wake of a very vigorous civil rights movement at that time, it, it has come to represent something even broader in American consciousness, and that is... You know, that, that upward slope of history, of people's intentions to seek equality, um, often in a, a racial context. And, you know, certainly, you know, at one time, you know, John Brown was considered to be a, a madman, a, an unhinged zealot uh, who was, you know, on the fringes of society. And I think increasingly, um, including today, uh, he has a much more sympathetic view by Americans as we continue to confront the racial heartache that still resonates from slavery and the American Civil War. And I think it people like John Brown and Frederick Douglass illustrate the same sort of conversations and debates that are still being had out in society today. And I I think one of those big questions is when is violence justified? When is it permissible to strike back against forces that oppress people? And on that point, Frederick Douglass and John Brown had very different thoughts. They had very different opinions on that matter, as we can see from their decided course of actions pertaining to the events at at Harper's Ferry. Um, And so I think certainly those events that resonated and continue to resonate out of Harper's Ferry still carry great sway in society as we look at these very profound issues.
0: You know, it's, it, you really nailed it on the head about how not only has it evolved, but it is still kind of finding a new voice as we come into our our heated uh, political times. Now, uh, when I was researching about your background and I saw the Harper's Ferry uh, connection and I, I admittedly didn't know as much as I probably should have about that. When I was looking it up, one of the first things that I found, obviously I'm going to say, oh, uh, what movies are there that I can watch about this? And right now in show time, on Showtime, there's going to be a limited series starring uh, Ethan Hawke as John Brown. He's going to be playing the abolitionist leading up to it. Frederick Douglass will make appearances. Um, it seems to be kind of like, you know, a small premiere drama about this exact moment. The word madman definitely does come up, not only in this iteration of him, but in the past. So, you know, not that it's necessarily going to be a pop culture movement, but you're, you're absolutely right to say that it, it still is evolving. And, and like I said, it's coming out, I think I think it's in a couple weeks, it'll be out. So I'll be watching that. Uh, and I'm sure you'll be watching it to, to make sure they're getting everything close to correct there. But yeah, you definitely uh, hit that one.
1: Yeah, and you know, I would say about uh, the Showtime series, the Good Lord Bird. There you go. Thank uh, you. know, having having only seen the, the preview of it at the moment, um, it, it very much seems to be in kind of a, a Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. flavor, much like Django Unchained. Sure. Um, where it takes some dark humor and blends it with some real life issues, and in this case, uh, real life people. Um, you know, I going from that snippet that, that I saw uh, in the various uh, previews that, that I've seen online, um, you know, oddly enough, despite the fact that it obviously portrays John Brown in a positive light, he is undoubtedly seen as the hero of the film, uh, it still kind of embraces, you know, the old trope that you know, he was insane. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know his, his sanity is something that is brought up very frequently in those trailers that we've seen. And, you know, I would historically take issue uh, with that hmm. um, because even Governor Wise of Virginia, the man who blew the Commonwealth's budget to make sure that John Brown would be executed, After the Harper's Ferry raid, Governor Wise, you know, essentially sat down and interviewed John Brown, and he walked away with the impression that not only was John Brown not crazy, uh, but he was a man fully in command of his sensibilities and had, you know, a firm and upright conviction in what he was doing. And that was the opinion of the man who was hanging him. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, even it just goes to show that, you know, kind of our popular perceptions of, of John Brown continue to evolve, perhaps not always accurately, but mm-hmm. at least in this case, in a somewhat more favorable light than what we've seen in earlier cinematic depictions.
0: Right. And, and you definitely need a little bit of crazy in there to keep it spicy. You know, the, the antihero aspect of him, at least to one side, is always going to be a thrilling role to see. Um, so, yeah, the Tarantinoizing izing of that, I, it, it'll be an interesting project. And, you know, that's kind of the stuff. I know you as a as a, a writer for historical things, I, I'm the same. There's always going to be a little bit of uh, painting with the artistic brush there. So um, th- that'll be, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of comes with the territory, which is fun. Um, so I am excited for that. I'm glad that it is kind of, you know, getting into the spotlight a little more, um, especially because around the Harper's Ferry um the, not, not just the park, but there's some specific things on the park that I think really kind of showcase, um, you know, the, the battle for these monuments, how our history history is remembered, and kind of like the tit-for-tat nature of um, two sides trying to maybe not one-up themselves, but at least kind of like, you know, set the stage. And uh, one of the most potent would be, I think it's still there at the moment. It, it's had a weird little life. Um, But it's the Hayward Shepherd Monument within the Harper's Ferry Monument. So, again, just to give our, our listeners just a little bit of background, I'm sure you're going to know everything a lot more than I am, but I'll try and just lay out the bullet points here. Um, Hayward Shepard was the first casualty in John Brown's raid. He was a noncombatant civilian. He was a free black uh, man who was working on the railroad there, who happened to get kind of ensnared in the early part of the raid uh, and was gunned down. Um, and, and, you know, casualty, I don't think it was good for anybody, obviously, um, years later, uh, around the turn of the century, and then the monument actually kind of uh, uh, was was in place in 1932. But the uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy, as uh, as well as the Sons of the Confederates uh, Veterans Associations, which at the time were very much trying to espouse this new lost cause narrative, um, they had a, uh, a committee called the Faithful Slave Memorial Committee. They were looking for opportunities to try and enshrine examples of black people who either didn't want to be free or make it seem as though that uh the enslaved were happy and and you know were, were casualties to this horrible uh northern aggression and all these kind of things which i mean you know i i as a as a historian and someone who works in academia i'm sure you can't call it outright bullshit but i'm just gonna throw that out there whether uh, whether you agree or not just for my own sanity um, but kind of the result of that is this monument to the Hayward Shepherd uh, casualty there trying to, you know, add another layer or or this new narrative physically in that landscape there where, you know, there was already a monument uh, put there in 1918 on where John Brown's fort was, where he actually, the, the battle, I guess battle, actually took place, uh, kind of commemorating the history of their heroism and things like that, um, obviously, put up there, you know, way in advance. And this was kind of the that was the tit. This is the tat. It's the the, the kind of let's try and correct this, um, you know, of the of that white southern, um, you know, lost cause narrative. And it, it was installed in 1932, and it was immediately, you know, uh, hated by. The I guess it was pretty new at the time, but the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, they hated it. They wanted to put a um, a plaque again next to that plaque to kind of qualify that plaque, uh, and it was a, a Web Dubois uh, poem, which the thesis of was pretty much uh, you know this is where uh, a, a, it awoke a guilty nation with John Brown's kind of um, you know the violence that happened here and and it culminates in John's brown John Brown's body is uh his soul is still marching on and it kind of tries to reframe the reframing of this place as a place of you know progression and uh and good things and then again in 1955 they added another another plaque to kind of qualify the qualification to the qualification and the web de Bois one actually never even was put up it was it wasn't actually allowed to be placed there until Uh, 2006, I think. Uh, It was covered up at one point during the 70s and 80s. And then in the 90s, another plaque was put up. I know I'm going on and on here, but it's just, it's wild to see how adding these qualifying monuments and these plaques in a physical space, trying to not necessarily, you know, rewrite the history, but trying to amend it on the fly. Um, As someone who's worked in that space, do, do you see this kind of, um, this kind of, you know, war for our memory—is it a live battle? Is it happening right now? Is the controversy of this more important than what actually happened there now? How do you, um, you know, what is your duty as someone who kind of protects this land and 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 brings it to the next generations? How do you uh, speak to that?
1: Well, I think it's interesting to point out from the beginning. Uh, in regard to these monuments, that Harper's Ferry is really one of the few places in the country where these two different historical visions come to terms. They 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 clash each other with competing monuments, and usually that was not the case. You know, it would, you would have a a Confederate memorial in front of a courthouse or on a town square, and you know, usually. You know, the the stories of the opposite forces, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, would be neglected or omitted completely. Um, but here at Harper's Ferry, you know, you see on one hand a memorial to John Brown uh, that is dedicated, you know, as World War I uh, is ongoing. And then there's a rebuttal to that.
0: Yeah, the rebuttal. Uh,
1: that, that, as you said, ties in with the prevailing lost cause sentiments that most white Americans really sort of bought into um, during that era. And then just, you know, a few years after that monument um, to Hayward Shepherd is dedicated, you know, you have these cultural phenomena like Gone with the Wind, which is the lost cause on steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know... Harper's Ferry becomes not only a place of historical meditation, but it also becomes a forum to discuss not merely history, but how history is memorialized and how it reflects people at a certain moment. What are the needs of society and how is history used as a vehicle to make those known? And respectively here, with these competing monuments and memorials at Harper's Ferry, we see the contested visions of civil rights in one corner versus white supremacy and whitewashing uh, in the other corner. And many historical sites and numerous national parks uh, have experienced history like this, and they continue to experience that. And, you know, to bring it into a more contemporary sense, when we look at places like Gettysburg, you know, that is a site that has been in the news a lot lately over these past several months. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the 4th of July, um, there was uh, a armed takeover of the National Cemetery uh, by you know militant groups who were wishing to protect monuments, uh, as they said, Uh, (laughs) President Trump was, you know, Gettysburg was on his short list, uh, you know, to have his, uh, you know, convention alternative, uh, you know, at, at Gettysburg. And, uh, you know, even more recently, you know, Joe Biden gave a speech at Gettysburg with, Mm -hmm. you know, little round top and big round top in the background, Uh, talking, you know, about unity and the better angels of our nature and trying to evoke Lincoln. And so, you know, once again, we kind of see, you know, these political and cultural forces still using historical landmarks to convey one perspective or another.
0: That's, it's funny because my my segue was going to be... (laughs) Has it heated up in recent years? And I think I had no idea that there was an armed militia that had uh, taken control of the cemetery at Gettysburg. But, I mean, that's pretty much it right there. These places now, that do they feel more contested? And, and as someone who's worked in these places, you know, over the years that you've seen them kind of evolve and stuff like that, uh, you know, I, I have memories of going to Gettysburg. I, I went to, I forget which anniversary, but, um, you know, I'm sure some listeners will know, but every every year, I think it was the 156th anniversary was the latest one, or maybe it was the 157th, but there's over 5,000 people in uniform whether they're professional professional reenactors or not hundreds and hundreds of horses and cannons and it's a 3-day weekend and it's nuts it's crazy especially i was there when i was pretty young i mean it was a party and you know it's it's a uh, gunpowder smoked landscape of gray and blue and and it is a blast but now today i haven't been there since then but I know for a fact, no matter how young I was, seeing a Confederate flag then was history. It was something else to me, maybe just because the times were less fraught then. But now I know that if I were to be in that same space and to see that kind of a spectacle, I would have a very different reaction, uh, you know, just because of how much I've learned, how much of the country has changed. Do you see these uh, these? American holy sites that kind of define how we got to where we are, do you see them as still almost active battlefields in a way?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um often being fought with words and ideas rather than bullets, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh but nonetheless they are still disputed spaces. And whether we take the Confederate flag into consideration or monuments. Uh, You know, those are the new campaigns of our ongoing civil war. What do these monuments mean? What should they say? How should they be interpreted? Should they be contextualized? Should they stand as they are? Should they be left up? Should they be taken down? These are all of the things that are being debated as we speak.
0: And to that effect, and you know, it would be hard for me because the the whole reason I kind of laid this podcast down was because the question I kept getting asked was, "Where do you stand on taking down or or removing or amending these uh, these statues?" And I didn't even I wasn't aware of the Harper's Ferry rebuttalism, uh, you know, constantly changing narratives there. And to think about them in this new kind of perspective, I think that it just kind of makes everything feel so movable and changeable. Um, Do you think, and I'm not trying to make this too political and I'm not bringing this to whether Trump or a Biden future is what's in store for us, but do you think that they are as malleable as maybe some people like to think that they are? Because there is so much hard historical evidence of things that happened that seem from our stand, maybe not ours, but but mine, where, you know, you can can look these things up. Things really did happen. Is the war for the, not just the words, but how we feel about them, you know, will will we be able to completely change what we think about these places in maybe 15 years from now?
1: Well, you know, I'll I'll answer it by putting it this way. Um, Revisionism is often used as a derogatory term. Uh, in regard to historical study. Um, And it is used in a way that often suggests that, you know, historians who are advocating a new sort of interpretation are uprooting long-held and cherished principles. Um, But in actuality, it is the job of a historian to be revisionist. If we do not constantly reanalyze, reinterpret, and reframe our history to have a better understanding and a richer context to it, there's really no point in studying it to begin with. Hmm. And with materials being digitized and becoming more available, I mean, you know, we have as historians more resources at our disposal than any generation of historians or writers that ever existed before us. And we should be adding additional content and understanding that enhance people's comprehension of where we've come from as a nation and where we're going. Um, And so I think that's the best way I can answer your question, is that history – The study of it, the promotion of it, it is a constant rewriting. And in many cases, it is is a reflection of us as society today. But with so many primary sources and speeches and old books and documents becoming available, now more than ever, we can have a better understanding, a better grip on what our ancestors were thinking and advocating.
0: I love I love that and the idea of history still being alive and still being written no matter how long ago it happened. Um, I think that's a fantastic way to put it. Um, so I, I want to shift kind of now to the people at those reenactments, uh, especially at Gettysburg, who are assuming the role of the Confederate soldiers and... There's millions of reasons why someone would want to put on that uniform and I'm not casting aspersions at all. I I really do understand, maybe empathize is the word, but I I know what that desire to be in that space is like and it it looks kind of crazy sometimes, but there is so much value to it. The question I'd like to ask you is, for the guys and ladies that are playing the southerner, that that want to, you know, march in the gray. There's definitely some kind of hierarchy going on there. As someone who is a reenactor yourself and someone who has seen this on the grand scale, can you just speak to the kind of psychology behind why they why someone would want to play the bad guy in that space? And maybe the bad guy is a little overboard, but I think you know what I'm getting at.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think certainly in many cases, people who portray Confederates certainly don't see them as the bad guys at all. Um, And once again, you know, it's a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of your upbringing. Um, It's a matter of location and what you were taught as a young person. And I I certainly can't speak for everyone who, who puts on a gray uniform. I'm sure there are Many who, you know, acknowledge why the war was fought, but, you know, then, too, there's a lot of Confederate apologism, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that that is within reenactor circles. And, you know, I think on a broader point, the differences in understanding among reenactors are more generational Hmm. than what they are determined by what color of jacket you're wearing. Um I remember one of the first reenactments I ever attended I was about 10 or 11 years old and at a at a site not too far away from me there was a a company of union cavalrymen who had their horses out and you know it was it was great you know mm. I was you know in the moment and, you know I was just eating it up as you know a fourth or a fifth grader Yeah And you know I got into conversation with one of these reenactors and you know he's probably about 45 or 50 years of age. And, you know, we got into discussion about why the Civil War happened. And, you know, he, he looked at me and he says, do you know why the Civil War happened? And I said, well, slavery, of course. And he said, well, not really. <laughs> you know, it was more about states' rights and, you know, Southerners defending their home and perceiving the, the Northerners as hostile invaders. And, you know, as an 11-year-old, who was I? to disagree. I mean, I didn't know that much, <laughs>
0: especially when he's speaking it's, from the top of a horse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I took his word for it, you know, um, you know, he, he had all this authentic equipment and, you know, he had a, a weapon and he was on a horse and it looked really impressive. And who was I to think otherwise? Hmm. And so, you know, all through, all through middle school and high school, you know, I I was I was of the same mind. It's like, well, I keep hearing all these reenactors telling me that the Civil War wasn't about slavery; that it wasn't the main issue.
0: And and who cares more than apart. these guys? You know, and th- when you see these guys, how impressive they are, whether they're historians or not, especially at that age, that's the guy who I'm going to listen to because clearly he's. Done his homework, some kind of homework. His passion yeah. is there. He's inspiring. So it can be very seductive, especially at that age. I do understand that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to go back to my, my point there, um, a bulk of Civil War reenactors, they they are baby boomers. Mm-hmm. They came of age in the 1950s and the 1960s when the Civil War centennial was taking place and they were raised on the narrative in school and in popular culture that was very much in tune with the lost cause interpretations of the conflict. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, the civil war was depicted to them as a war that didn't have good guys and bad guys in many cases that both sides were fighting fervently and rightfully for what they believed was the correct course of action. And so, you know, them being instructed as such, as young people, much like I was, that carried on for decades and decades later. And, you know, and I think our inability to come to terms with what the Civil War was all about. I mean, all you have to do is read the Articles of Secession Bingo. to see immediately why <laughs> Southerners seceded from the Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, once again, that sort of pop culture or uh, hobby element of history, um, it has the ability to inform as well as misinform a lot of people. And so, you know, I would say it's generational, and, uh, you know, reenactments, you know, regardless of, you know, kind of the historical stances that, that a lot of reenactors took, you know, they were great ways for people to visualize and comprehend perhaps what a Civil War battle looked like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, you know, now, you know, a lot of those first generations of reenactors, you know, they're getting in their 60s and their 70s. They aren't reenacting anymore. They're selling off their equipment and you know i'd definitely say that since the sesquicentennial the 150th anniversary that was the last hurrah for many of them hmm. and that there's a substantially smaller number of civil war reenactors in the country versus what there was 20 years ago um all that said you know i think in many cases today in the hobby that there is a hope or conviction that well, perhaps it'll be a matter of quality over quantity. Mm. Maybe there'll be less reenactors, but those who do reenact will be more literate on the causes and consequences of the Civil War, be more willing to discuss them with the general public, and perhaps even have higher standards of authenticity. Um, There's a really great group that has several hundred members called the Liberty Rifles. And, you know, And, you know, a lot of them are people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, you know, who look more the age of Civil War soldiers, and they have a very high degree of authenticity, and they portray both sides, and they do it in a very effective manner. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think think as younger reenactors, even though they may be fewer, having grown up in this sort of new political and racial consciousness, and also some of the, the controversy that the civil war is steeped in i think that perhaps there may be a greater willingness to discuss those previously taboo issues hmm. so that's that's merely what i get a sense of from uh sitting on the sidelines i
0: i like your uh, optimism there and I, I i i'm not quite in that space but i hope that tracks and honestly like i'd like to be a part of whatever that is so that does sound good um and and so you also, uh, not to, not to try and put them in the same side of the ledger because the the new versions of that, they, they do sound, uh, you know, pretty great, pretty hopeful when you do reenactments in the world war two space, I, that that's, I've seen some great awesome photos of you in, uh, some really great American GI gear. Um, it, it looks like a blast and I, in the pictures that you were in, I didn't see, happen to see any, but on the other side of that reenactment battle, there's going to be Nazis. You know that is that is the fact of the historical matter. There, the people who play the Nazi in those reenactments. I'm not saying that the ideologies or anything like that. Anything but the uniforms are probably the only things that really slide to the to that side there, but. In my experience, um, I, I have a couple of friends that I uh, that they're actual uh, colorists, they were they restore black and white photos from the 40s and namely World War Two. And I kind of uh, lucked into a group of these guys because they're brilliant. They know so much and they're able to just like really pinpoint exactly what you're looking at in any given photo with any clues and I was asking questions for, uh, for a World War II related project. And I, I started looking at what these guys were colorizing. And maybe they had each done 200, 500 different photos. And with the exception of maybe two or three, every one of those photos was SS. They were Nazis. It was Wehrmacht in Russia. And the body of work there was just so demonstrably German and none of these guys were in fact German. I they were some Europeans and stuff like that. And I didn't really know that till I was talking to them. And I was asking very candid questions. And at a certain point I was just kind of like, wait, am I like in a group of some kind of weird Nazi fetishist thing going on here? And I was kind of looking around like shit, I don't know if I don't know if I should be in here, even though they're brilliant and perhaps from my experience they only had the best historical intentions with that generation of Civil War, Southern reenactors, that is kind of, we're seeing a changing of the guard. Um, The guys who play the Nazis, do you think that there is any difference between those two groups? And as you said, with the actual militants that took control of that Confederate cemetery, do you think that there's any correlation between these groups in which that it could slide in that direction to something that's a little more serious and a little more scary?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it, it's difficult for me to to say how any of these groups are are correlated in any sort of formal sense. Um, I'm sure there is some crossover to some extent, um, and likewise, I, I can't you know uh, you know numerically categorize you know uh, the number of German reenactors who have good intentions sure. or, or bad intentions. All yeah. I can do is offer. Uh, you know, a, a few anecdotes um, that kind of illustrate both sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've I've reenacted and worked alongside you know a, a number of German reenactors, and uh, some of them are individuals who are you know very very you know astute in the subject matter. And, you know, they they realize what they're doing and they realize that there can be a a hint of controversy to what they're doing. But, you know, at the same time, they believe that it's important to talk about both sides. And, you know, as one of them said to me, somebody has to play the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody has to do it. And so a lot of them really have that intention at heart and are, are not politicized in any way. Um, On the other hand, I I have seen some other things that would indicate some individuals going in the other direction, um, where, you know, there's perhaps glorification of the SS. Most events try to avoid such groups being involved in manners like that. Um, In other cases, well, you know, reenacting is often a family affair, and, you know, people bring their kids and their spouses with them when they go reenacting which is fine um in this case though uh one group had dressed up their toddlers in little hitler youth uniforms yeah. <laughs> uh, which i found very disturbing and uncomfortable
2: yeah
1: um, you know uh kind of you know doing this thing to your kids and putting them in that very uncomfortable space uh without them having full knowledge of really what they were being put into Um, And so when I see things like that, it certainly raises an eyebrow and you really have to wonder about the inner motives um, of of parents who would do something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, aside from Um, being
1: like, those are kind of the two extremes uh, that, that I have encountered.
0: Yeah, I, and it's funny. Other than being, you know, darkly hysterical to see a small child dressed as Hitler, as as not funny and really funny as that is, you know, there's that weird line that I'm always wondering about, especially when so much of the, you know, question about tearing down monuments has come down to it's about history, and in so many ways, it's it's just not. Um, so I've I've been wrestling with that one, and I think it'll probably be a lifelong uh, contest. It's really, really kind of figure out where that line is and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep searching on that one.
1: Well, yes, and this is a conversation that I have often with my students. And, and in the classroom, uh, you know, I do not advocate, you know, one way or another in regard to monuments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I really make the argument, you really need to judge it on a case-by-case basis what is the context? What, what is the inscription on the side? Where is it placed? Uh, what are the wishes of the community? Y- you need to take all of these things
2: mm-hmm.
1: into consideration. Um, I will say this, though, um, about Confederate monuments in particular, uh, and I often say it in response to people who declare, you know, it's our history, you can't change it. Well, history is always changing. Um, The Confederates themselves drastically altered it. Um, But there is an inherent difference between commemoration and celebration. Mm -hmm. There is a difference between memory and memorializing. Um, And case in point, um, on July 9th, 1776, the citizens of New York City tore-down statue of King George III. And the reason that they tore it down in a very public way is because that statue no longer represented they or their ideals. And I think we see something very similar happening in many Southern communities that are growing increasingly diverse Uh, in which, you know, more and more minorities and African-Americans are attaining public office and the cities are becoming more cosmopolitan and people do not identify with the Confederacy and they don't want those memorials to represent they or their communities in public spaces. And I think when you frame it in that sort of way, it is perfectly understandable to see why many communities want to take down their Confederate statues. And if you're looking to, you know, lure in a corporation or a big business hmm. into your town, um, having the Confederate flag flying from storefronts or in public spaces isn't always the most welcoming billboard. Hmm. And you know, I think in a smaller way, uh, we see that in Gettysburg. And I think this is something that the community of Gettysburg will have to come to terms with in one form or another, uh, because for a long time, the Confederate flag in Gettysburg, despite it being within a northern state, uh, the Confederate flag was a symbol of commerce as much as anything. Hmm. To a lot of white Southerners who visited the town, it said, you are welcome here. <laughs> well, More specifically, your money is welcomed here. Um but once again, as the nation continues to become more and more of a melting pot, entrepreneurs and business people in places like Gettysburg are going to have to, you know, there's gonna to have to be a reckoning with that, you know, who is your audience? who do you want to pull in? Um, those are the sorts of things that are going to have to be confronted, you know, from, an economic standpoint, as well as a historical one and the, the sustainability of a place like Gettysburg as a tourist destination.
0: Hmm. It's fascinating to really contextualize it with, you know, the, the modern world, commerce, <laughs> things like that, because, you know, in a lot of ways that, that's going to end up being the driving factor no matter what you want. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I might not have thought about it that way, but, you know, that's, that's a really great point.
1: And I think too, um, you know, there's there has, as the 4th of July demonstrations indicated, you know, there, there is concern among some Americans that, you know, Confederate statues in national parks are going to be taken down. And that, that's a whole other ball of wax. It's, it's a lot more difficult to bureaucratically remove a statue from uh, federal property mm-hmm. than, than a national park as such. Um, But, you know, I think at Gettysburg, you know, Confederate monuments are very different than what you find, you know, in a town square in Mississippi or Tennessee Mm -hmm. uh, because it it lends to the orientation of the landscape to a a large extent. That isn't to say that there isn't controversy behind several of them. They were controversial when they were dedicated Mm -hmm. well over a century ago in some cases. Um, union veterans didn't want them there, and their their language was debated. Even some of the ones that dedicated in the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies there um, have some very questionable language on them. And I think the direction that the National Park Service wishes to go in, as a very viable middle of the road solution, is to put up wayside panels that offer context, of the same sort of context that you and I are talking about. Here's the monument. You can read what it says on the side of it, but here's some background information on what was said at the dedication speeches of them or who paid for it Mm -hmm. or who were the individuals who promoted this? What was their ambition? And I think a model like that is a very feasible blueprint that a lot of communities could follow if they are looking to add some sort of educational interpretation to monuments without having to go through the chaos that could come from taking down a monument. And um, I, so, I, yeah.
0: I, I definitely feel you yeah on that, especially for you know Gettysburg. Not to say that it's easier or harder, but you know it is a historical site that makes a lot of sense because what you want there is the con- is the context. Sorry, I got uh, the uh, SWAT team is just uh, driving past my apartment here. Um. The the you want the context and you want to be able to teach as much as you can in those spaces. But when it comes to something very specifically like Lee's statue in Virginia, the you know the giant mounted statue that has been under um, I, I believe it is coming down now. It's it's taking a lot of uh, back and forth. Um, do you think that there is value? Uh, maybe not value, but do you think it is uh, you know a course corrective? To take a statue like that down when it is in, uh, you know, the the center of a public space, the dedication, you know, was put up by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. For, you know, I, I I'm sure it's debatable, but I would say many of the wrong reasons, um, things like that, that continue to be seen by a lot of people as kind of blights on our community and and things that stop progress from being made. I don't know if a qualifying plaque is ever really going to fix that. Maybe not fix, but, mm-hmm. you know, and that one that one just happens to be a real easy one to to look at because, you know, Lee's great quote from 1869 when he's talking about having, you know, Confederate monuments at the Gettysburg Memorial and things like that, the old, I think it wiser not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavored to obliterate the marks of civil strife and commit to oblivion the feelings engendered. You know, that's the guy whose statue is that he's the one yes. who's up there. And it just seems so wildly antithetical to, you know, if you actually cared about th- how important this guy was, you wouldn't do this. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yes. And uh that is the sort of myopic situation we often come into when it comes to Civil War memory uh, that the, there's. There's a, a painting called Southern Trinity, um, perhaps you or uh, some of your listeners have seen, and uh, it it depicts uh, Jesus Christ in the center. Uh, Robert E. Lee is on the right, and Elvis Presley is on the <laughs> left. Um, and it's called Southern Trinity. Look it up. You've I am looking it
0: up out right out now, <laughs> and, and this is uh, hysterical.
1: And uh, you know, and so you know, he's definitely in this sort of pantheon of celebrity if not spiritual type personalities uh, for many people in the south to this very day but of course um, you know he called for all of his soldiers to put away their uniforms don't get out the flag let's move on Uh, he was not as uh, in tune in, in the reconciliation trend when it came to racial matters but when it came to Uh, the nation, you know, in in a formal sense, being mended back together, uh, you know, he believed that not observing the Confederacy in such manners was a a crucial element to rebuilding the country. Mm -hmm. And that is a bit of Robert E. Lee's advice that has been wholeheartedly neglected Mm -hmm. (laughs) over the past century and a half. and so I'm not sure if I have a, a firm answer to your question other than to uh, add an exclamation point on to the end of it, um, <laughs> saying how unusual and antithetical a situation it is, as you said.
0: Great. I, I, I appreciate this conversation. I, I could talk to you for many more hours, and there's so, much, so many uh, questions within questions I'd like to uh, ask you, and maybe we'll have time for that another time. Um, so I, I really want to thank you for, for, you know, giving myself and whoever's listening to this some context here. Uh, I think it's brilliant work that you're doing. Um, and I, I wanted to f- finish it up with one question that kind of relates to the uh, Hurtgen, your Hurtgen Forest movie about the la- later stages of World War II. As people who are, you know, with the War Daddy podcast, such as it is and all the other projects, they're all historical. They're all about war. They are trying to teach in some way, or at least bring people closer. And I have my own feelings on what that mission is. But as far as movies, pop culture, and especially for someone who's writing books, writing films, you're you're putting you know you're putting up uh, you know pieces to a pop culture landscape, whether you like it or not. In that role, as someone bringing history or parts of history to people who may have never seen it in their lives. What do you feel that your role or your duty or responsibility is in creating these really lasting, you know, parts of history on someone's subconscious?
1: That's a a great question. There's a lot of different ways that I could answer this. But, you know, as my brother and I were contemplating this project and writing out a script, one thing that we were trying to do is to avoid a lot of the stereotypes uh that are often found in war movies you know there's always a a guy from brooklyn who misses his girlfriend there's always a guy wearing glasses um you know who's not quite the a-plus soldier that everybody else is um there's the guy who's constantly thinking and writing to his girl and uh etc 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 and really uh you know the best way to avoid you know a lot of those uh old patterns, um, is to do your research. Uh, You know, we we poured over firsthand accounts pertaining to the Herdkin Forest, the GI experience during the war. Our personal experiences as reenactors likewise gave us better perspective on how they lived, what they wore, what they ate, the weapons that they used. And so I think in all things historical, whether it be books, monuments, or movies, uh, it's important to have a degree of empathy in regard to your subject matter. What made them tick? What may, what motivated them? Um, empathy should not always be confused as sympathy. Hmm. All right? You don't have to be sympathetic, of course, to the Third Reich. <laughs> um, but... You know, understanding the people of the past, putting yourself in their shoes, I think for something like a movie, is a profoundly important thing to take into consideration. And the more research that you do, the better story and the more realistic of a story that you'll be able to present to audiences without having to use some of those old cinematic tropes as a crutch.
0: Uh, that's fantastic and i i feel you on every note of that and in, in all the writing i've done i mean that's that's what it is the, the empathy is the most important thing and it's a great distinction to make not necessarily sympathy but the empathy will get you somewhere um jared i really appreciate you spending the time with myself and whoever's listening to this i wish you the best of luck in all your endeavors i hope you keep making more and more and uh the the book you mentioned that's it's available now. Uh, Please tell me that one again. I missed you there.
1: Yeah, um, I have a a few books available. Um, Some of my more recent ones included Dispatches of D-Day. And uh, I have uh, a brand new book that is coming out that is uh, called Hang Tough. And that is the World War II Letters and Artifacts of Major Dick Winters. Oh, wow. uh, He was the main character in the HBO series Band of Brothers.
0: Yeah, I I don't know a human being my age that's, or maybe not everybody, but guys of our ilk that aren't familiar with uh, good old Dick Winners. That sounds awesome.
1: Yep, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Jared, thank you so much. Again, I wish you the best of luck, and uh, I'll be looking forward to uh, all your pieces as they come
1: out. Thank you very much.
0: As a result of the House of Representatives' July bipartisan 305-113 ruling to purge the capital of Confederate iconography, the Lee statue that kicked off this episode is now heading for a new home in a museum. This news, I think it's safe to say, is a solid win. His statue will be replaced with one of Barbara Johns, who, as a 16-year-old, defied school segregation in Virginia in 1951. The choice of, quote, a trailblazing young woman of color, is aimed to inspire visitors to the Capitol to, quote, create positive change in their communities, just like she did. In similar news this month, the House and the Senate overwhelmingly passed another bill to strip the names of Confederate leaders from military bases. In spite of Mr. Trump's threats to hold up this year's defense authorization over this provision, the bipartisan veto-proof majority rendered his resistance efforts futile. Wait a second. All right, holy shit. This literally just came across my screen as a news alert while I'm recording this. Um, So apparently, Trump has reportedly refused to sign this bill and will veto it, regardless of Congress's power to override his veto. Uh, And he apparently even cited the removal of Confederate names from military bases as part of his reasoning to do so. Oy vey. (laughs) I, I really can't understand this sheltering and coddling of friggin'... Traitors against the United States. This is an army that fought to preserve slavery. What the f- Okay. This sets up the first presidential veto override that Congress will use against Trump, and it'll be used to defend a bipartisan-supported bill to cleanse our military of the Confederate stains of the past, and it'll be issued in the fading light of Mr. Trump's one and only term. How appropriate. So, no matter how much progress we seem to make, there's always going to be people clinging to this bullshit. For instance, that massive, mounted Robert E. Lee statue on Richmond's Monument Ave, you know, the one that became the flashpoint of this summer's protests, well, that still currently stands. Even though it was backed by huge public support, the governor's attempts to remove the statue hit a snare when a Richmond judge upheld an archaic 1890s state constitutional statute, stating that Virginia must, quote, faithfully guard and effectually protect the giant statue. But hopefully for not much longer. In a new decision this week by the same judge, he ruled that the governor's order essentially had the power to undo previous agreements linked to the statue. In his new ruling, the judge actually cited testimony from two professors who had described what had led to the installation in the first place. These testimonies from Dr. Edward L. Ayers, a history professor at the University of Richmond, and Dr. Kevin K. Gaines, a professor of Africana Studies and History at Cornell, quote, overwhelmingly established the need of the Southern citizenry at the time to establish a monument to their lost cause and to some degree their whole way of life, including slavery. Those are the judge's words. In the words of Mark R. Herring, the Virginia Attorney General, quote, the Lee statue has held a place of prominence and stood as a memorial to Virginia's racist past in the center of our capital city for entirely too long. I can't help but agree with him. I see this as yet another instance in which history defines our future. It proves that the why of these statues matters. And it's the tireless work of history nerds like my buddy, Jared, that allow us to understand our past with a critical, impartial, and truthful eye. So cheers to all you history nerds this holiday season. And not just the pros, cheers to all you folks digging deeper for a better understanding. We've all got work to do, so I wish you luck. Cheers to the death of 2020.